Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. We've probably all heard of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Indeed, many of us have peculiar little quirks that we jokingly attribute to the disorder. In the days before the internet, I was a prolific letter writer, and having written several letters to various people and placed them in their respective addressed envelopes, I would take them back out again and check to make sure all the pages were for the correct letter, and the letter itself was in the correct envelope. I mean... You don't want your septuagenarian auntie reading a letter intended for a close friend outlining some youthful mischief you had recently partaken in. And I couldn't be satisfied until I'd performed this little ceremony two or three times, and even then there was some apprehension about sealing the envelope. Fortunately for me, I never did give any elderly relatives a fright with my descriptions of the latest escapades of carefree youth, nor did this odd behaviour persist. If I still cared as much today, I'd be in a world of trouble in the digital age where I've sent a text or email to completely the wrong person on several occasions. But not all OCD is a harmless quirk like needing to straighten picture frames or fold towels a certain way. Taken to the extreme, the need for orderliness and perfectionism can be outright debilitating. And such was the case for a 19-year-old lad from Vancouver who has only been identified in textbooks and the media as George. George's obsessive-compulsive disorder manifested itself as an extreme need for cleanliness. He would shower multiple times a day, and the number of times he would wash his hands in a single day has been estimated in the hundreds. George was young, with his whole life ahead of him. He had a high IQ and did very well at school, But his inability to stop these compulsions made his future seem incredibly bleak. George had sought help, but this was back in the 1980s, and the disorder was less understood at the time, particularly out in the community where most forms of mental illness were at that time considered shameful or treated as malingering. And that was how George's OCD was viewed by his mother. When George told her that he felt the disorder so debilitating and depressing he would rather be dead, her response was to roll her eyes and brush it off as nonsense. She even suggested that if things were that bad, he should just go and shoot himself. Now that may sound like horrible parenting, and for all I know perhaps it was, but I'm a child of the 1970s and 80s and I'm familiar with the tough love parenting style of the era, and it's entirely possible that she thought he was just being melodramatic. In any case, I imagine her world fell apart shortly afterwards when a gunshot rang out from the basement. George had shot himself in the head with a .22 calibre rifle. George was rushed to hospital, and surgeons, fortunately, were able to remove the bullet from where it had lodged in his frontal lobe. And believe it or not, he made a full recovery. Actually, he came out of surgery in a much better state than he was before he attempted suicide. Now, don't try this at home, as they say, but George, in his attempts to end it all, to escape the torment of his OCD, had inadvertently destroyed the part of his brain 
that was causing the OCD in the first place, but was otherwise left unscathed. If the odds of this being the outcome have ever been calculated, I haven't been able to find any information on it, but they are beyond extraordinary. They must be astronomical. We are all familiar with the concept of the con artist and their ability to persuade people into believing them for various purposes, usually to cheat them out of money. One of the most famous being Frank Abagnale Jr., whose exploits inspired the 2002 film Catch Me If You Can, but history is littered with con artists. In fact, I could probably specialise in them and still have several years of material. But today, I'm going to concentrate on one man. Gert Pestel was born in Bremen, Germany, on the 18th of June 1958. On completion of school, he became a postal delivery worker, what was known at the time as a mailman. But Gert Pestel had other ambitions. Pestel's mother committed suicide when he was young, and he believed this was because she had been prescribed the wrong treatment for depression. His mother's death affected young Gert to such a degree that he found himself in a juvenile psychiatric ward. His stint in the ward led him to conclude that psychiatry was bunkum, and his belief that it may have contributed to his mother's death rather than prevent it instilled in him a laser-focused desire to humiliate the field of psychology and, as he saw it, expose them. He believed, quote, any trained goat can become a psychiatrist, end quote. And so he set out to prove his theory. At this point, I want to take pains to establish that I don't endorse his belief, and I have great respect for the field of psychiatry. Nonetheless, this is an interesting story. In the early 1980s, he managed to get a job in Oldenburg, in a clinic for psychotherapeutic medicine, as an assistant doctor. He would later gain employment at a vocational training centre. In the job application for that one, he had promoted himself to doctor, And that was the position he held until using forged certificates to apply for a position in the German army. Despite having no experience or qualifications, he was able to get all of these positions. But it would be during his stint with the army that he first aroused suspicion. He was caught out, but you may be surprised to learn that the proceedings against him were dropped. Now, rather than mop his brow with a bald handkerchief, breathe a sigh of relief and go back to his mail run, Gert took a position as deputy medical officer using the alias Dr. Dr. Clemens Bartholdy. Yes, you heard me correctly. It wasn't a mistake in the editing process. Pastel didn't just call himself Dr. Clemens Bartholdy. He called himself Dr. Dr. Clemens Bartholdy, and nobody seemed to find that odd. What they did find odd was when Pastel accidentally misplaced both his fake and real ID and the two were found together. Interestingly, he was uncovered as a fraud as he was about to take up a new position. He was to be an assistant in Kiel University Hospital. A man with no qualifications in his chosen field had blagged his way into a position where he would assist in the teaching of people in that field. But it wasn't to be. In 1984, Pastel was arrested and given a suspended sentence for forging health certificates and unauthorised assumption of academic titles. He went quiet for a period after this, or at least with regard to his vendetta against psychiatry. 
Instead, he turned his con artistry elsewhere. Most notably, he gained admission to study Catholic theology in Munster in 1989, and made such an impression he was able to orchestrate a private audience with the then Pope John Paul II. But he would soon turn his attention back to psychiatry, and in 1995 landed the job of senior physician in a specialised neurology and psychiatry clinic in Leipzig, and this time he used his real name. During the application process, he was shortlisted, and he and the other shortlisted candidates were asked to give a lecture. Pastel's subject, compulsive deception as enhancement of the self, and Thomas Mann's exemplary figure of Felix Kroll. If you haven't read the book, Felix Kroll is a con man, a fictional con man. During the interview, he was asked what his thesis was about, to which Pastel replied without hesitation, quote, cognitive-induced distortions in the stereotypical formation of judgment, end quote. And in a world that even back in 1995 was soaking in postmodernist theory, that completely meaningless word salad concocted on the spot by a con man didn't raise a single questioning eyebrow. He got the job. A job that in part entailed giving lectures to up to a hundred qualified psychiatrists. Pastel knew he was talking nonsense, and Pastel knew that they knew he was talking nonsense. But what held it all together was that while he knew they knew he was talking nonsense, they didn't know he knew he was talking nonsense. Nobody wanted to point out that the Emperor had no clothes, for fear it might not have been faulty information, but rather their own poor comprehension. In other words, nobody wanted to risk looking stupid. So they let him prattle on. Not only did everyone keep any misgivings they may have had to themselves, but in an assessment given by one senior consultant, it was even said Pastel, quote, exceeds all expectations. End quote. In fact, Pastel was being considered for a professorship and chief of medicine position at the Saxony Hospital for Psychiatry and Neurology. Quite an achievement for someone with no qualifications, but it wasn't to be. In 1997, Pastel took on an assistant who found him very pleasant and considerably less stressful to work for than her previous boss. The young woman spoke of her relief to have found such a laid-back boss to her parents, and in their minds, something about the name Gert Pastel rang a bell, and after a while, the penny dropped. Gert Pastel was the man convicted years earlier of impersonating a doctor. Now Pastel was a wanted man, but he got wind of this and fled. But he had one last brazen con. After seeing himself on television while hiding out in Berlin, he knew he would be recognised. But rather than try to flee, he calmly wrote a note and stuck it to his front door. The note read, Dear Simone, I'm with Steffi in Bremen. Back in a week. See you. Yours, Gert. And in a scene that could have been used in a Marx Brothers movie, the police arrived, read the note, assumed it to be true, and left again, with Pastel watching them the whole time through the peephole. But finally, on the 12th of May 1998, he was arrested. You may be surprised to learn that during his trial, the prosecution was unable to find any former patients who were unhappy with their treatment. Without anybody pressing further charges, Pastel was sentenced to four years for forgery, of which he served less than two years. At the time of this recording, Gert Pastel is alive and well and using social media platforms 
to take pot shots at psychiatry. been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time. Peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.